Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to Brains Bite Back. The podcast looking at all things to do with psychology, technology and our society. According to Statista, in 2018, 16,128 cases of online identity theft and 65,116 cases of non-payment or non-delivery fraud were reported to the US Internet Crime Complaint Center. But cybercrime has not always been this prevalent in our lives. Though it's hard to imagine in today's modern world, there was a time before computers where cybercrime wasn't considered a threat. To understand how cybercrime has evolved from nothing to the ubiquitous threat that it is today, we spoke with Cindy Murphy, a retired cybercrime police officer and the president and founder of Tetra Defense. Murphy served 31 years in the police force helping to combat cybercrime across the US before leaving the police force with one year left until retirement. Murphy was offered a very large deal to work for a private company, which she turned down. The company continued to increase the offer and she continued to turn them down. It wasn't until she was invited to see what they were working on in the forensics lab that made her retire from the police force almost immediately. They showed her something she thought was impossible. Stay tuned to find out what happens, and I hope you enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background in cybersecurity and law enforcement? Sure. So I am a 31-year policing veteran and started policing when I was 18 years old in 1985 um, as an MP in the U.S. Army. Obviously, back then we didn't have computers, um, but I already came into the Army with um, some computer knowledge because of my father's work to help us be familiar with the earliest computer, home computer technologies that were out there. So, um, So I had that advantage. At the time, when I was in high school, I turned in a paper for my senior social studies class that had been done on a word processor. And was told by the teacher that that was cheating um, and that I needed to handwrite the paper. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so, Where is that teacher now? <laughs> uh, where is that teacher now? I, I don't know. He was actually one of my favorite teachers, but, oh. um, but it, yeah, he, he said that it gave me an unfair advantage. And honestly, that may be the truth um, because my father's proactive thinking back then when I was in my formative years, teaching me DOS, teaching me file systems when I was six, all of those things prepared me ahead of my peers in a lot of ways to deal with computer technology. So, um, so I was in the Army for three years as an MP. And then I worked for three years for the Department of Veterans Affairs as a police officer in a mental health facility. So basically a psychiatric hospital. And that was my first work experience with computers. We had a workstation that was used to do some basic logging of of events and for some surveillance camera purposes and those sorts of things. Very basic things and green screen. (laughs) Um, so, so this was 
way back when. And in 1991, I responded to an ad in Policing Magazine for a policing position in Madison, Wisconsin. There were 2,400 applicants for 24 jobs, and I got one of those jobs. Um, I was drawn to Madison because of a philosophy called community policing, um, which is community-based and is really heavily based on problem solving and on helping people to resolve the issues, whether they're physical or whether they're economic or whether they're psychological in their own neighborhoods um, and, and sort of help them help police themselves. Again, when I moved to Madison Police Department, there were maybe five or six computers in policing, um, not very many. And I would say um, it, there was zero thought about cybercrime because it just wasn't a thing yet. So in uh, 1998, a young man from Madison was cutting historical signatures out of original books in the State Historical Library at the University of Wisconsin and was selling them on these things called newsgroups. And when this was reported to the police by a professor at MIT, nobody knew what newsgroups were. And um, everybody was kind of, you know, scratching their heads about what to do about this. And I knew what they were. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I worked with a detective um, and uh, turns out um, on the other end of that conversation at MIT was a guy named Owen Casey who is one of the, the academic founding fathers of digital forensics. So that first case, uh, which I actually did on light duty after, after having um, an injury, <laughs> chasing a person with a gun, um, wow. I did not get shot. I did not get shot. I, uh, I climbed a fence and, and lacerated my hamstring and uh, messed up my back. Um, but I, and I did catch the guy. Um, hey. so, uh, yeah, but that first case really gave me a taste for the work because it was a different kind of chase, right? Um, yeah. In, and probably less dangerous in many ways. Um, although I have had suspects, you know, cyber stalk me back. So it's, it's not that it's entirely not dangerous, but that first case, uh, was a, a really cool experience and uh, we were able to to catch that guy and and hold him responsible and obviously those poor books will never be made whole but um <laughs> but the mystery was solved yeah yeah so i um was in policing did computer forensics in policing for um 17 and a half years built two computer forensics labs and at some point started to think about doing an academic program in forensics um, because by the, the mid to late 2000s, those programs were starting to pop up. And uh, wanting that broader view, I started looking for programs and had worked on homicide case where a phone was broken in half at the scene in 2005 or so. Nope, 2000, it was later than that. <laughs> but anyway, a, a phone was broken in half and none of the current phone forensics tools could address it. So I invented a method to extract the data from it. And you can't do that um, in the courts, right? You, you can't just come up with a novel way to solve a problem and have that fly in criminal courts. There's, you know, Daubert and all sorts of things that, that protect 
us from just just doing that on the fly problem solving. So I knew that, but I also knew that the data in the phone was important. So I worked with Champlain College in Purdue and got a bunch of test phones and wrote up my method in a scientific paper, had it published, went through the academic review process, even before I had any academic credentials <laughs> um, <laughs> and had two sets of graduate students test and comment on my procedure. And that way, um, that method could uh, stand up to the Daubert process. Interestingly, there was just an arrest made in that case all these years later. It went unsolved from 2006 or so through uh, through this year. So we'll see uh, how <laughs> how that ends up working out. But was that arrest partially thanks to the work that you had done, or was that something as a result of something completely unrelated? It did not rely on the work that I did. It was based on on DNA, on the progress in in DNA testing technology, and so. Uh, that and a jailhouse confession. Actually, there was more than one jailhouse confession, but the first person he confessed to died. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so the second one is is still around, I guess. So yeah, I mean, sometimes these cases just take years and years. Um, and I don't know when I do the work whether or not it's going to be an important factor in the case, but I have to treat it as mm. if it's going to be. So anyway, I presented that forensics method at a conference, uh, Mobile Forensics World in Chicago in 2008. And there was a person from University College Dublin sitting in the audience. And they came up to me afterwards and said, I know you said you don't have any ac academic credentials in this area, but you should come do the, the law enforcement program at University College Dublin. So I started researching that problem and I realized that anytime something you want to do and something you feel like you have to do come into concordance with each other, um, you should do it, <laughs> right? Like I had always wanted to go to Ireland um, and, and I felt I needed to get a higher degree in, in digital forensics or in cybercrime of some sort. And those two things merged in this opportunity and within nine days I had applied and within three months I was sitting in a chair starting the program at uh, UCD. And I graduated in 2011 uh, with my master's degree and did tons of, I mean, you know, before and after and during my master's program did tons of really interesting cases at, at the police department. I was called by my uh, my chief, Chief Koval, uh, a renaissance cop. He said, you know, you you are the exception to the rule. And, you know, the, the fact that police are asked to do so much in terms of uh, policing everything from disturbances and barking dogs to um, major thefts and frauds and homicides. And we deal with the mentally ill and we deal with people who are, you know, out to hurt other people. And then along comes technology. Very few people are trained and ready to deal with that challenge. And and I took to it really naturally and loved it. But I, I retired a year before my eligibility date. And after a career in policing where someone could retire on their state benefits, I just happened to have um, a local company, um, Gilware, reach out and say, hey, we're looking to start a forensics company. And I said, that's great, but I have a year left here. Fast forward two days, they called back and said, 
we want to start this forensics company. Will you just sit down and talk with us? Just, mm -hmm. just some consulting time. We'll, we'll pay you if you want. I'm like, you don't have to pay me to talk about this stuff. Obviously, I love to talk about this stuff. <laughs> and um, so a one hour meeting turned into four hours. Um, the next day, they threw an offer at me that was, that was very attractive. And I said, look, I've been in policing for 30 years, I would really like to retire. <laughs> I want to finish what I started, right? Um, come to me next year. And they kept pushing and I kept saying no. And they kept upping, upping the ante. And, and finally, they said, how about equal ownership in this thing? And come for a tour at our facility. So I went for a tour and they showed me something that I thought was impossible. And once they showed me that thing that they did that I thought was impossible, I understood that it, it wasn't simply about retiring early. It was about a new opportunity to learn about technology in ways that were different than I understood it. The thing that they showed me was a SD card from a camera that belonged to a photographer. The photographer had been hired to shoot a wedding in Hawaii. So obviously somebody spent a lot of time and money to bring this photographer out on this trip. So she came back from Hawaii, weary from travel, and lost track of which card was which and reformatted this SD card that had all of those wedding pictures on it. And she was desperate to get those pictures back. And from what I knew, everything I knew about digital storage, if I had put that card into a write blocker, looked at it um, with my forensic software, it would have shown all zeros. It would have been clean. Would have been no way for my tools to get back any data. But the way flash memory works is that there's a, a thing called a flash translation layer that basically fools the memory into thinking it's empty when you reformat it. <laughs> it's not really empty. Um, it's disorganized and it's random, like, you know, a, a three million piece puzzle, just random mm -hmm. pieces out there under the flash translation layer with no organization. But if you take the chip off of the SD card and you directly read it electronically, and then you take the data there, it's no longer zeros. But if you, know, if you have Windows look at it or Unix or Linux look at it, it looks like zeros because it's going through an operating system that's believing what the flash translation layer is telling it. But if you read it directly, uh, you can get to all of the ones and zeros. And they managed to get 300 pictures back for this photographer and charged her kind of a minuscule amount of money, which I <laughs> loved, right? Because for me, it was like this piece of magic that they did that opened my eyes and showed me that um, as much as I knew and as many times as I had been called an expert, there was still a lot I didn't know. So that was effectively the moment I retired. Right. was when I saw that trick, uh, which isn't a trick. It's um, what it is, I think, is that our brains rely on heuristics, right? Like if we see something happen, we use that same shortcut the next time we have an experience and we do it over and over again. Because if we had to think through everything with a totally different set of facts and circumstances each time, it would take an enormous amount of time and we'd never get anything done. Right. If we didn't think of flash memory as being 
um, very similar to um, traditional hard disk memory, you know, and we didn't take the time, then we would have missed it. And somebody took the time, right, to say, yeah. wait, there's this thing. And if we can get past that flash translation layer and get to that data, it could still be there. Um, now, it's not always there. That's the caveat here um, because of how flash memory works. But sometimes it is, right? So, I, again, I, I wrote about that because I came from law enforcement where child pornography images are very prevalent, where we see those cases every day and they're absolutely heartbreaking. And I thought about all the times I had looked at a piece of flash media and said, nope, it's all zeros and moved on to the next, right? Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, cops need to know this, right? Like they need to know that it's not necessarily true, that it is possible that under that flash translation layer lives the data that, that they need to, to solve those cases. Yeah. Um, so I wrote about it and presented about it. And I did leave the police department to start Gilware Digital Forensics. We started really small in 2016, uh, just me. Uh, doing doing forensics work, supported by a 40-person data recovery company, because that was the main business line still. And as of last October, we were five people. As of last week, we're about 40. I would guess we will grow, we'll double again in the next year. I, I mean, I can't predict that, but just based on the demand from things like uh, ransomware cases, we've expanded what we do. It's not just forensics right. anymore. We do incident response and proactive services, and it's a wide, full variety of services that we provide. And I would say our, our number one case type now is is ransomware. There's there's certainly a demand. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, and a demand, and it's probably is growing as well. Sadly, yeah. but I suppose so, it's good news for you guys and, and, and your company. Yeah, it's very good news, and we it's such good news. We we rebranded in January from. Gilware Digital Forensics to Tetra Defense because, you know, we were no longer just doing digital forensics and the, the Gilware name comes from the, the people who started that business and it had grown beyond me and it had grown beyond that family um, that ran the data recovery business um, and it's become really something that I'm, I'm very proud of and I hope to keep seeing grow. Um, we really try our best to... Um, provide white glove service, really hands-on full service to our clients who are going through some of the hardest times you know, yeah. imaginable and who don't know technology, right? So part of our goal is to help them through through that process wherever they're at. And the insurance company panels that we're on, some of them know us as the company that they send the problem cases to. <laughs> <laughs> because so, well, that's a good know, sign yeah in the u.s we have this term called midwest nice and and that's <laughs> that's our company you know we just we're very patient so good well it sounds like you're you're definitely heading in the right direction and it's a good time considering obviously the the demand for needs like that are growing and i have to say given your uh, your background there and and what you've gone for it sounds like you've uh Led a very interesting and very um colorful life in the sense that there's there's so much packed into there. I've got so many questions and I'm oh. so so keen <laughs> to learn more. But I have to say there is one thing that we really do need to discuss because this is the main thing that I got you on the show for. And I gotta say it sounds like some serious like James Bond level like corporate cyber espionage. I've been really keen to get into this like since the moment I like heard the summary. Would you be able to explain what happened and how you're involved and what the case was like? 
Sure. Um, so all of this started in 2012. And if you remember my story, in 2012, I was happily being a cybercrime cop, right? I was not focused on international um, cyber espionage in the least. But in 2012, a company out in California hired a foreign natural, national to work for them. And it was a, a guy who had a great deal of knowledge about, about lighting and diodes and, you know, things that I do not understand. <laughs> um, you and me both. <laughs> but, but this was an LED company that was developing um, new technology that would take down the price of individual LED bulbs and increase those lights that we all now totally rely on, right? Yeah. <laughs> For everything. And so I, I guess we're talking about a different kind of technology progression. So this foreign national came to the U.S. through an academic program from China um, and um, was hired by this company and was doing research inside the company and was helping them to develop their product. Um, and in that position, he had access to a lot of their technology secrets. Um, and and this, is, this is a, unfortunately, it's a, a scenario that has played itself out over and over across our country in different sectors. Involving, you know, different, sometimes, you know, companies within the U.S., sometimes companies outside the U.S., but in, in this case, it was a California company and a Chinese foreign national. And as time went along, there was a Chinese company that reached out and offered this person a job, and he turned that job down, but on the side was still in communications with these people, and there was a deposit made into his checking account, a large one. And obviously the LED company that he worked for in the U.S. was unaware of this. And in the background in China, there was a toaster factory that was refit to do LED work. And as time went forward, he continued to do his work inside the U.S. company. And then at some point, abruptly left that job and went back to China. And another big deposit was made into his bank account. So obviously they started to look at this pattern and they um, contacted the FBI and some other folks and it turned out that before he left for China, he had put a lock protected USB device into a safety deposit box in a bank in California. And um, obviously he had a work computer as well and that remained. And um, so a in California, uh, a civil lawsuit started right? because yeah. it, it became pretty obvious based on some email communications and other things that, that he had exfiltrated or stolen data. And this civil lawsuit started moving forward and they asked for his personal computer through attorneys. And the response was that when he had traveled to China, it was broken. And so he threw it out, plastic bag on the curb the last time he saw it. Unlikely, but, you know, yeah. could happen. So they did end up working with law enforcement to get that eight gigabyte USB drive out of the safety deposit box in the bank in California. And that device, along with a work computer, went to a forensics company in California for some work. And they imaged the computer and they worked with a defense expert present and 
attempted to do an image of device and were stymied by the encrypted partition, the locked part of that USB device. Uh -huh. You remember my earlier story about flash memory. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> what happened was that um, the attorneys in the case started doing some research, came across uh, some papers and articles I was writing about flash memory and made an inquiry out whether it would be possible to get into this encrypted container. And we gave what is probably the, the number one expert response, which is it depends, right? <laughs> it depends <laughs> on how that's set up and on what level of encryption is applied and whether it's truly encrypted or not, um, because not all things um, are advertised correctly. But through a bunch of work, this USB device, after it was examined by the forensics firm in California, went to another forensics firm, one of the largest three in the country up in uh, Michigan. And we were hired you know, to develop a protocol and to chip off work to pull the flash memory off of that eight gigabyte USB drive and see what we could see and whether we could get past that encryption. So the other firm had done some, some work on that device first, and they had a protocol in place that they were supposed to follow. Um, it, and it turns out part of what, what our work found was that they hadn't followed that protocol because um, changes had been made to the USB device while it was in the custody of the opposing experts that wouldn't have been made if they had used a, a write blocking device, which, um, which they chose not to. They mounted the USB device and changed a bunch of dates and times. And, and anything you change at the surfaces of a USB drive makes lots more changes underneath that flash translation layer. So basically, it's a, a, a little bit of a question of, uh, well, not even a question. It's a, it, it becomes in, in the civil law world a question of spoliation, right? Like, did they on purpose or accidentally destroy potential evidence that, that was on that device? So fast forward, the device comes to us. We do the extraction and are able to get into that encrypted container, which turns out to be empty. Um, so, oh, <laughs> so it's not always about what's there. Um, and I mean, I, I think per gigabyte, I mean, this is an eight gigabyte device from 2012, which time that would have been a really nice USB thumb drive. But yeah. I think about the amount of time, energy and money spent on this device. And, and it was um, fairly crazy. There were some files that we were able to recover from that device that that were relevant to the case and showed um, showed some knowledge on the on that employee's part that what he was doing wasn't right and he had saved some of the communications with the the folks back in China as well so. So it wasn't that it was a total loss. It's just that that encrypted container that everybody was sure was going to hold the smoking gun. <laughs> wasn't as critical as we thought it would be. <laughs> wasn't as critical as we thought it would be. Yeah. Um, in the end, it went to a jury trial. And the jury trial was, I, I think it lasted for two weeks. And I mean, like in most cases, the digital evidence was only a small part of the issue. And I, my job was to walk through what had been done with that USB drive, both in terms of the protocol, how it should have gone, how we knew that was not followed, what the potential consequences of that would be, you know, in terms of destruction of data, 
um, and over the things that, that were relevant and to talk a little bit about what we found on, on the actual computer. Part of my job really was to translate for people from technical to human, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Because uh, I think experts tend to try to talk um, smart, right? Like they want to sound like they have a full understanding of every engineering concept and every, um, every electronic <laughs> transaction that happens um, at the bit level. And they talk about bits and bytes and hex and, and people's eyes glaze over um, mm. because <laughs> the vast majority of us humans, th those concepts aren't aren't grounded in in the reality of our every, everyday lives. And the job of an expert in, in my position is to to talk about those things in terms that people can understand. And so I try my very best to find analogies that um, help people to have a better understanding and to draw pictures, right? Um, yeah. And if we're looking at an electronic component uh, up on the screen, rather than talking about the technical terms for the parts of that component, I think the, the attorney almost laughed, <laughs> spit his coffee out when I, I called the prongs on, on one of these circuits, little leggy things, um, <laughs> but the jury understood it, right? Like those are the, those, those layman's are the leggy terms. things. <laughs> yes. um, I mean, part of what we need to do um, is work through those heuristic shortcuts and, and try to, to break them down into pieces that people can understand. And I, I don't know, kind of off topic, my, my favorite book in all the world was written by Julian James, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. What a mouthful. Um, yeah, but, catchy. But Julian James, I think had he lived a nice long life, would have been um, just a, an amazingly luminary figure because he he really studied how how the language we use and the analogies we use moves us forward towards understanding of the world around us. And as I see it, one of the most difficult problems with technology uh, and the internet and the devices we use is that people only have a very cursory understanding of those things that they rely so heavily on, right? Yeah. And our, our language hasn't developed to, to explain that to people in ways that they commonly understand. And so we have to find ways to, to bridge that gap um, so that juries can understand, so that parents and siblings and kids and, and the general people can understand um, what's, what's happened in, in any of these cases. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. And like I said, I'm, I'm doing this technology podcast from the, the stance of a psychology perspective. So definitely when people use analogies or, or simple terms to kind of describe things, and especially in this show, because I'm someone that's very quizzical and I've got lots of questions. And I kind of like the fact that this this podcast is a space to have real conversations about complex technical issues to be broken down into far more digestible conversations. <laughs> little leggy things, yes. Yeah, little leggy <laughs> things, yeah. We are the little leggy things of uh, technology here at Brains Bite Back. I definitely think that this case is is like something I've, I've never really experienced, obviously, in, in my situation. I've never seen this, so like it's kind of cool to like look underneath and see how it all works and what all the components are, all the, all the leggy things, as you would say. But um, in general, I'd be interested to know, as someone that's spent a lot of time 
working in cybersecurity and, and law enforcement and the two combined. Do you think like as it stands, do you think that police departments throughout the US have the resources and capabilities to keep up with modern day cyber threats? And do they understand all the little details and all the leggy things that you go into? So uh, this isn't even a question of, of opinion. The answer is no. Um, we are we are sorely, sorely underfunded and under trained in this area. Uh, and, and across the US, it, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, I think there are, are something like, uh, and I'm going to get this number totally wrong, but for, for the sake of putting a number to it, 36,000 different jurisdictions, state, local, tribal, federal, you know, village, county, all, mm. all of those, those different agencies that any given cybercrime incident could fall under or um, any piece of digital evidence from a traditional crime could fall under. And cybercrime, forensics, computer use, um, those things are taught to a different level to every one of those jurisdictions. Um, and, and there's no, no standard for making sure that, that our police officers, um, detectives, uh, and and others have a good understanding of of the technology that that they intersect with, um, and if you think about it, I mean they're being asked to respond to a fatality accident and then go to a domestic and then investigate a, a child neglect case where maybe the kid hasn't eaten, has broken bones, has scabies and lice. There's roaches crawling around, and you know next call they go on might be a cyber stalking incident. And hey, are you are you going to collect that triage evidence now? Where's that USB device? Remember your training. So yes, cops are equipped to to respond to all sorts of different things. But to be good at collecting digital evidence, to be good at um, investing cyber, investigating cybercrime, you need to have reps, and you need to have training, and you need to have resources and uh, and and people to talk to about the unique situations that are going to crop up in every one of these cases. And we're just not there yet. And there's very little funding, even pre-COVID, um, and very little focus because yeah, there are so many challenges. I mean, the, the, the folks who are in charge of police departments uh, tend to be folks who are digital immigrants, right? Like it's all foreign to them. They don't want to yeah. know about it. They just want you to deal with it, right? Like, and don't try to explain it because um, it's, it's just not part what of, they signed up for, I guess. Right. Not what they signed yeah. up for and not, not, it feels separate from the rest of crime somehow, mm. right? Like it's, it's not, it's not necessarily the thing that's going to be calling the most attention to itself. It's, it's generally nonviolent, right? Like it's, mm. um, and while it can result in, in big losses, you know, generally those cases get investigated by a, a higher level federal or, or state agency. Um, so what we tend to have is individuals in local police departments or or teams um, in larger police departments, municipal police departments. If you get into New York City or Boston, you might be in great shape because they probably have a cybercrime unit that's got good, solid training. If you're out in a rural county in Montana or Vermont, well, Vermont's probably covered well because 
because they've got a great bunch of people up there. But, yeah. you know, but if you're in a, a rural area where there's where there's less um, focus on that training, it's going to be very hard to find somebody with the training and expertise that's that allows them to feel comfortable handling this. And yet, even in those rural counties in in Montana and Utah and and Tennessee and Kentucky, everybody's using cell phones, everybody's using computers, um, and and the evidence that that's needed or or could help support proving that crime exists in those devices. Hit and miss, unfortunately. And actually, let me just stop and say one other huge challenge is budget cycles. You'll notice technology moves at its own speed and it's fast, right? Like it's you you can't predict necessarily from one year to the next what the new thing is going to be and how much storage it's going to have and um, and what you're going to need to do to deal with um, getting around encryption or or those sorts of things. But police budget cycles run year to year um, very predictably. And in the spring, they'll ask you what you're going to need in the fall. And you'll need to justify your budgeting for that. And, um, and you can expect that, that a lot of it will get <laughs> cropped out. And then yeah. in the late fall, when they've been squandering those budgets the way they tend to, there will be a moment between October and December where somebody says, Oh, we have a bunch of money left in the budget. We need to spend it all now before we lose it. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, then the, the spending doesn't necessarily get done in a way that has good foresight for what's needed in the future. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a, I mean, it's a huge challenge in the U.S. and and probably in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. There are other parts of the world where where police departments are much better prepared. Would you be able to point to any countries which do have really good cybersecurity policing systems in place? Sure. So because I, I went to University College Dublin and my classmates were from all over the world, I, I had some great insight into how other country, countries are handling this problem. And the Dutch National Police have their own training college specifically for cybercrime issues and for forensics and incident response. And they do a great job of training a certain number of their police force in those areas. And obviously it's not everybody, but they can then call in those resources when a particular crime um, has, those, has those factors involved. Um, the UK also does a really great job. I, I, the last I heard, almost all or all of their street level um, officers are trained in um, collection of evidence and recognition, recognition of evidence. Ireland too has put in place a program where they're attempting to train every single one of their responding officers in how to recognize and properly collect digital evidence. So, so there are other countries doing it well, but these are places generally where they have one overreaching police department, right? Yeah. Or, or maybe one overreaching police department and several regional police departments, um, as opposed to those 36,000 jurisdictions going in yeah. different directions. I can imagine a small country like uh, Holland is a hell of a lot easier to, to cover rather than like even Montana, for example. Well, maybe not because of the population density, but certainly for size. Right. I, you know, and I think about Wisconsin, it, it is roughly the size of Ireland. Um, yeah. So if you just put, put ocean all around us, we would, we would be, uh, <laughs> we'd be pretty equivalent, but we have 72 counties and yeah. uh, 
um, and each with its own law enforcement agencies at the city, you know, village, um, maybe tribal, state, <laughs> local jurisdiction. So um, as, as opposed to the Gardaí, the, the Irish National Police um, who cover the counties in Ireland. And Northern Ireland may be different, but obviously it's still a simpler setup for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. <laughs> Cindy, I have to say, I, I don't think I could have picked a better guest to come on and, and talk about cybercrime and, and policing. It's, you've clearly got a, a solid resume in this in this department, in this area, and a lot of stories to tell. And yeah, I've generally really enjoyed this. This has been great fun. If, uh, if anyone's listening to this and do want to hear more stories or just keep up with what you're doing, is there a way for them to follow you on social media? Or do you have a website that you can point them to? Yeah, so I am at Cindy Murph on Twitter. I'm not super active on Twitter. It makes my ADHD tendencies go crazy. <laughs> but uh, my company's website is tetradefense.com and there's a contact us page or you can email directly, cmurphy at tetradefense. I'm also on LinkedIn, so pretty, pretty easy to find out there. Awesome, excellent. Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. I and Sam, I'm also happy to come back. I've got tons of great stories. We didn't even get into like the nine year saga of, of my policing career. So I can imagine we've only just scratched the surface given what I've heard today. That's awesome. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did like this show, then you can check out episodes just like this at sociable.co. You can also follow us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, anywhere you get your podcasts, we will be there. So check us out. And we would love to hear what you think about the show and this episode. So reach out to us on Twitter at, at the sociable. We're friendly, I promise. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care.